Simeone never shakes anyone's hands. <laughs> Back down the tunnel, let's not bother no, with that crap. I've got a lot of respect for that. I, I knew you would. No, I no, I've got a lot of respect for that. that. Subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB Sports app. And you're welcome to the Sunday Paper Review on Off the Ball. John Duggan here sitting in for Joe Malloy today. I'm delighted to be joined by the Irish Independent sports writer Vincent Hogan and the associate editor of The Currency, Dion Fanning, to review the stories of the day. Hope you're both well and we'll go through the back pages to start before we get into the topics. So uh, we have the Sunday Times here, a different class. This is a Mason Mount's hat-trick against uh, Norwich for Chelsea. So we have a 7-0 win for Chelsea yesterday in the Premier League. And also uh, the more important story, I suppose, at the bottom. President, there's an appetite for GA changes. This is after Proposal B uh, to have a league championship structure for the football championship failed uh, at Congress yesterday to pass the 60% required. So we'll discuss that off the, off the top here. Uh, the Sunday Independent Sport, Munster pay the penalty. This is the defeat uh, by uh, the... Uh, Ospreys in Swansea last night, 18-10, so Munster going down in the United Rugby Championship. And also, football's overhaul stalled after no vote. This is Dermot Crow. Power and reservations of provincial councils hold sway. This is uh, about Proposal B, which failed at Congress yesterday, Special Congress. Uh, the Observer, who needs Lukaku? This is Mason Mount. Magnificent seven. Uh, for tabletoppers, Chelsea's Mount Hattrick helps crush Norwich without injured 97.5 million pound striker. That is the observer. Uh, we've got the back of the Irish Daily Mail about Man United and uh, Liverpool uh, today, which is a half four start. Ronaldo, I'll shut you up. United star hits back at critics, uh, accusing him of not pulling in his weight. And GPA vowed to return with stronger plan as Congress rejects change after that vote on proposal B at Croke Park yesterday. The Sunday World. Pay the money, or pay the money, uh, Mo Salah. Liverpool owners warn fans won't forgive losing Super Salah, who's looking to score for the 10th successive game uh, today against Manchester United. And Ronaldo's war cry, uh, I will close mouths and win, uh, writes Kevin Palmer at the back of the Sunday World. And GA says a firm no to Plan B, written by uh, Sean McGoldrick. Well, the, the motion did pass, but not by 60%. At the Sunday Mirror Sport, all A's title kings... United boss Warren stars don't be the ones to let Liverpool catch us and proposal B falls short at Congress on the back of the Sunday Mirror. The star, which is more of an English version on a Sunday. No more mistakes, Ole, we've got to stay in our perch and mountain of goals, Chelsea 7, Norwich nil. And then the back of the Irish Sun on Sunday, Mick McCarthy, Bluebirds, Axe Mick and Doormen. As of course the Ballon d'Or I win everything says Ronaldo so I don't care about snipers taking shots at me and Mo Salah I'll tell myself I'm the best player in the world all the time and fan lash at tune Crystal Palace fans have accused Newcastle's new owners of terrorism beheadings and murder and then Tom Parsons a picture of him on the back of the sun motions apart Tom we still need this to change possibly at a motion that's put forward before Congress in February when the GA reconvenes uh, administratively on the structure of the football championship. We're going to have next year for 2022 is the provincial football championship is normal. We're going to have the All-Ireland qualifiers, the back door, no Super 8s. So we'll have quarterfinals as it was between 2001 and 2017. We will have a secondary as well, Charlton Cup. Vincent, I suppose that's probably the best place to start proposal B and its failure to pass Congress yesterday. Yeah, it's not a big surprise, John, really. Um, I, I suppose the one thing you would say is any kind of depiction of the GAS dinosaurs. I mean, a majority did support this. Um, 
but a very small majority and, and it needed 60% of the vote to go um, for change. And I think it's, it's, it's very disappointing, I'd say, just even from a neutral point of view for, for me that, the, you know, we're now essentially going to have a reversion to the championship of 2017 style. And um, I think the football championship hasn't been fit for purpose for a good number of years. We've seen what's happened in Leinster. But one of the quotes of yesterday that stands out for me is from Declan Bohan, uh, the, the Leitrim secretary. And he describes the grim realities visited on them by their 26-point defeat by Mayo in this year's Connacht Championship. The structure we currently have is broken, he said. We met the footballers of our county after we exited the championship this year and were told in no uncertain terms that if something doesn't change, you won't see us again. That's the reality. And that is the reality for certainly players in what we call so-called lesser counties. Where is the appeal of going back into a, a provincial championship structure that is completely stale and completely imbalanced and where there's a pointlessness and there's an expectation that nonetheless, despite that pointlessness, that you will train and work and hard and, and, and sacrifice as much as the Dublins, as the Donegals and the Tyrones and the Mayos. But why, why would you do that? And why would you give up on a social life when that's the only prospect? And I suppose the appeal of, of Plan B, John, was it guaranteed every single county seven games against teams broadly of their own standard. That was hugely appealing. But it did have flaws. It had glaring flaws. And I suppose the most glaring was that three Division One teams were going to be excluded from the All-Ireland Championship, but a Division Four team was going to be included. But there, you know, you're never going to have, there is no magic bullet here. And I think the one thing we do see is virtually every speech yesterday, it seemed to me, acknowledged the fact that there is a desperate need for change. I would echo what Tom Parsons of the GPA said. I, I, I hope they don't put this on the long finger now, because I think if you're a player in, in these again, so-called lesser counties, if you're told, well, we'll have a look at it in two years and we'll, we'll try to come up with something else. The bottom line is there is no perfect solution here. But if you had a majority, as you did at yesterday's special Congress in favor of this, I don't think this proposal needs a huge amount of tweaking to push it over the line with 60%. And I, I hope we see a situation where come February, and the annual Congress, that this, that you know, a proposal comes back that is a little bit more palatable, but you will always have what we had yesterday, the, the, this very strong Ulster resistance to it because they're, they feel they have the most tenable championship and, and they do, they have a, a fairly vibrant championship up there with a lot of teams that could beat each other. And they spoke very strongly against this, but, there is an appetite there. And I think the players, I think it's 80% of GPA members yes. are in favor of change. Look, we can't ignore the players and we have to listen to them. And to show we're listening, I think what happens from yesterday has got to be a real sense of urgency to come back quickly with something new. Tom Ryan, the director general says that might take a bit of work for that to get onto the chlor on the Congress on February. It could be the case you have a special Congress again next year, Vincent. Mm -hmm. um, there was disappointing aspects for me around this. The first thing was that this was a secret ballot. 
So yeah. the club players put it forward a couple of years ago that you have transparency in your votes. When you were looking at all, and there's been more excitement about this Congress and this vote the last few weeks that I've ever remembered for ahead of a Congress, uh, you had all these pledges of support from Leinster especially that the delegates would vote for change in Proposal B and all the estimates were that would be very close to or beyond 60%. I was shocked, I suppose, initially, but then later in the day, I probably wasn't shocked that it only got 51%, and it wasn't just Ulster that said no. But nobody will ever know because it was a secret ballot. So nobody will ever know if delegates voted as they were mandated to do so. Transparency around there would be good. To me, it all says, Vincent, that there is appetite for change, but there was a lot of speakers talking about well, we need to discuss this more and debate this more. Sometimes in negotiations, you've got to just push, push it through. And my concern is that the provincial apparatus holds too much power in the association and it's too devolved, the power is too devolved and there are too many factions. Well, they do hold a lot of power. I mean, obviously, I mean, the whole model of the GA is built around the four provincial councils. Um, and I, I agree with you completely on the transparency issue, John. I mean, you, you and you saw the, the kind of, the sense of outrage when it was even put on put on the floor at that time that uh, let's have a proposal for transparent voting, like this is you know <laughs> this is this tells you a lot about how defensive people can be within the whole shell of the GA when it comes to talking about change. Imagine not wanting clarity out there on who how you voted in a situation I like know this. You know, it's the first game of the season. Go ahead, Vincent. Yeah, it's it's just it's just quite bizarre, and um, it's a it's a bizarre mentality that really belongs, I think, in Stasi East Germany almost. Well, it's very Irish in in the kind of the wrong way, you know, and it's quite political, um, obviously. Uh, Dion, I suppose the one. Uh, positive aspect and we're discussing transparency there is that administrators are coming under the spotlight more and more not only in this sport GA but in other sports uh, there's many plans there's like uh, the Joe Brody's written today about um, having that link with the provincial winners being part of a system where they would be in the top 16 um, with seeded league teams but with all these things with so many factions and it takes it takes task forces and fixtures committees a long time to get these things to to the floor, I'm a little bit sceptical that will, it'll be coming back in February. Yeah, well, I, I would defer to you on that, John. Uh, I'm not a, a GA administration expert by any means, and I'm happy to love to listen to yourself and, and Vinny talk about this, but I did go, I am, I am, I did once spend a, a very long couple of days at GA Congress in 2017, the year the extra Super 8 was introduced. And I think, like in reading Joe Brawley again today, I think one of the things that strikes you when you're there, apart from like that great GA commitment to bureaucracy and uh, um, everything that goes with that, is and this is a good thing, is that sense of the of the delegates on the floor, that belief that they are, are representing something that is more than just a sporting organization, that they really believe, you know, in the kind of the Joe Brawley, if you like, vision of the GEA, an organization that is unique and 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 is for everybody and is and is rooted in the club and then is rooted in the provinces and the problem, as it seems to me, as somebody looking from the outside, is that at, at what what you have now is with that at one side, you then have more and more demands being placed on players um, 
for 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 many of them fewer and fewer rewards and fewer and fewer good days and that is the problem the increased professionalism if you like um on one side and the you know the the whole culture of because of how far ahead and how how much progress the biggest counties have made in football um that Everybody has to be doing that. You know, the classic, we're, tra- we're, we're training at 6 a.m. on Christmas morning or whatever it is. And most of it, to my view, and is probably completely pointless. It is an arms race. It is to be seen to be doing something. But it doesn't do anything. But it makes huge demands on people. And then, you know, as Vincent said, you have these counties and these players who, who make these huge sacrifices for very, very little. Um, and, you know, we saw it in the attitude of certain administrators during the week on on off the ball when they're talking about you know uh, the players won't be around in a couple of years they see that, that there is this there is this clash um so that is one of the issues that i think is very hard to resolve and i think Malachi clerken wrote about in the irish times yesterday that that is also a, a function of the amount of money there is in ga for the big club for big counties and i don't think that's necessarily resolved by this proposal but it does also strike me again, looking in, is that the leadership, I don't know, and and Vinny would, would answer this for me more, like I don't know how strong the GAA leadership have been on this. Uh, and it seems to me that, you know, when it came to the crunch, the provincial councils and people talk about their power and they talk about it sometimes in a way that seems like that this is a bad thing but but as, as Brawley lays out today and as other people laid out like for 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 some of them though the 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 ulster championship connacht championship to a degree these are important these still matter to them now i think they've been weak and fundamental obviously leinster has munster has because the jeopardy has been taken away to a degree like you know you know and i remember as a kid following gaelic football and you know if kerry lost to cork that was it like they lost the munster final that was it um, that's not the case anymore. But these proposals seem to me that that would weaken that even further. And then you end up in a situation like where these provincial championships become like the FA Cup. Everybody talks about the magic of them, the importance of them. But ultimately, when the big teams don't care whether they're in them or not in them, the, the game is over. Now, I don't know if that's fair looking on from the outside, but that's there's some of the views I would have, you know, I, I just I just wonder about. I would say that when I think about hurling, I think even though you have Munster and Leinster championships, they don't feel to me like Munster and Leinster championships anymore. They feel like a league system. We have a brilliant league system of five teams in Rand Robins. The Munster final, which was a revered part of the Irish fabric to me doesn't mean anything anymore. But the Rand Robin really means something because you have a really competitive matches and you have two teams in each province being knocked out Galway were a couple of years ago. Um, I do feel, Vincent, there's a disconnect between uh, the integrity and we're not questioning anybody's integrity here, but I suppose the areas of which people are invested in provincially, for example, and then the players who had very little vote in this, two votes, I believe, the GPA out of 168 delegates and the public. Because next year, what I can imagine seeing is in a split season where everything is wrapped up by July because the pandemic ultimately determined that you'd have now an inter-county and a club season split into the calendar year by accident. 
you will have hurling dominating everything for the championship period and then you'll have people only really getting interested in the football championship at the business end. Yeah, I wouldn't disagree with any of that. Uh, I think the big issue with what was going to what was proposed to happen with the provincial um, championships was that their their proximity to the, the All Ireland was very much uh, diminished in that they were almost run as pre-season competitions, and that's certainly how the provincial councils perceived it. I mean, this um, likeness to the McGrath Cup or the O'Byrne Cup was was being thrown around the place, and and you can see why. And and I I, I think in the I think I read somewhere that the Sean Kelly, Jim McGuinness proposal, which wasn't put forward yesterday, obviously, there, there was the, the, the one thing that they put into removing the, 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 the championships, the, the Munster championships, to, to that kind of uh, proximity from the All-Ireland was the, the winners of the provincial championships got some kind of a seeding benefit for the All-Ireland, which, so then you have that link. But yeah, I, look, I, I do worry for the football championship next year. There's a staleness about it. And, and in many ways, the whole debate about yesterday in the lead up to yesterday is it now when we're sitting here this morning with the reality that we're basically going to have the championship we had in 2017, it, it does feel like a real opportunity missed. And, you know, but but what strikes me as well is that there is a very entrenched language coming from Ulster particularly. And you might imagine that a, a county like Antrim, for example, where you know they, they are one of maybe themselves and for manner the least competitive counties in that championship, that they, they, they don't really go into that championship with a real chance of winning it. Um, but they were as strident. I mean, particularly the Antrim GA chairman, Kieran McAvana, summed up the overriding sentiment among Ulster. I'm quoting this now from Philip Lanigan's piece in the Mail. And he said, uh, do not rush into change because of outside voices. Now that's, that's a line that really is resonant of paranoia and a real culture of uh, feeling defensive against people suggesting change. Because who are the outside voices? The players? Because if you get into that kind of a mindset, that how dare the players be suggesting something. Um, you're in a very dangerous territory here because I think, you know, there's obviously no suggestion of any kind of militant action from players over this. And I, I very much doubt there will be. Um, but if, if the players lose interest in what they're being presented with, then the GA has a very fundamental problem on its hands. And I think the appetite of players, certainly in weaker counties, to commit to a structure that is patently not fit for purpose is clearly waning quite dramatically. And we're about to head into a, a year, 2022, when hopefully post COVID, we hope, travel opportunities are going to open up and travel opportunities for young men in particular, maybe coming out of college will open up. Maybe J1 visas are back on the board. like. You're going to have a situation in a lot of counties looking at that championship next year and a lot of men, I think, saying, why would I bother? Why, in all honesty, why would I bother when I can do so much else? Vincent, but when you say, like, who are they talking about when they talk about outsiders? Is there any doubt that it's 
the players, which is an extraordinary. They might be talking about the media, Dion. I mean, Plus, I know yeah. we, we took a strong position here on OTV. We're not a public service broadcaster. We took a strong position. I took a strong position. Jerry Gilroy took a strong position. Um, but we also had Brian McAvoy on. We had Michael Reynolds on to give their points of view. Um, and a lot of this is cloudy because of the fact that you don't know the transparency of the vote. You don't know if this was a vote against Proposal B because of the merits or not of the proposal and it wasn't perfect or whether it was a vote against change. But I suggest, John, I don't don't think it's necessarily just the media. I think it's part of it. That's what he's referring to. And, and, you know, journalists with a strong opinion is is frowned upon. But most journalists who've written about this are members of GA clubs themselves. They're they're GA people. But I think that embedded in some of this, and I'm not necessarily necessarily saying this is what he was talking about, is there is an an inbuilt resistance to the GPA as well. And the GPA is the voice of the current intercounty players. But isn't that, isn't that it? Like, that is the thing. And like, as, as, again, I, I, I don't need to preface everything with being not a, a, not a true Gale, but as an outsider, like sometimes this idea of the uniqueness of the GEA grates, to be honest, like this idea that the GEA, and when you see a debate like this, you, go, you look at it and you go, this is the exact same conversation, the exact same tussle that has existed everywhere between administrators and what they see as troublesome, troublemaking players. And, you know, the GA may be actually behind the curve on this because of the amateur status, but like this is like Tom Finney wanting to leave Preston in whatever year it was and the chairman just telling him, why would why would thou want to go to Italy, Tom? You'll be staying here for life, you know? And the, the idea of the GPA or whoever as the outsider as the people who don't really have any concerns for the greater good of the uh, of the association um, seems to be quite a widespread one and there's obviously the media fixation then as well but when you read when you hear those quotes you think this is the kind of GEA that you would have be familiar with or some of us would have heard all our lives about various things whether it's foreign sports or whatever it's the same those that that same voice and uh i think like i i know like we we had a in the currency with a piece by paul flynn yesterday and i like talking to paul during the week about it paul and he wrote it in his piece he was he wasn't very confident at all that this would pass like he he felt that when it came to the crunch maybe because of the secret ballot maybe whatever um it wasn't something that was going to be embraced this time and part of it and i again Remember from that from the Congress I was at that sense that there are almost um, fifth columnists, if you like, present within the GAA in the form of the GPA, um, is something that seems to be take a long time to to change. Well, I think that it's the the issue I would have with it. I think it's very varied. I think. Tom Ryan and Larry McCarthy were quite progressive at their press conference the other day when they advocated uh, Larry McCarthy by being bold about Proposal B. Kevin O'Donovan has spoken very well from Cork on this and has come across as a moderniser. I just think it's so factional and I really don't know 100% what the thinking of any delegate is um, because I don't know what their vote is. And yeah, that... I, would, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't disagree with that at all, John. I think it's very important to, to say that this has been really well debated and, and you know, it has, been, it has been given a really strong airing. So I'm, I'm not trying, and, and again, I've made reference to this earlier, I, I hate this thing that, you know, 
the, it, the easy thing now is to depict the GA as dinosaurs who just won't move. I mean, the GA has moved in so many fresh and new directions in, in the last few years, um, kind of almost maverick directions by given what, what their past is. And, and I agree with you, some of the, some of the debate yesterday was very balanced. It was very realistic. I, I just hope that this doesn't go on the long finger now because the appetite is there for change. And as I said, almost every speaker seemed to reference the need for change. And, you know, players don't have an, a, a small eternity to play. If you're a 27 or a 28-year-old now in Leitrim or Wicklow or wherever, and you're thinking, I had a chance maybe in 2023 of something that would give me what Proposal B was saying, seven competitive matches against teams of my standard, of our standard, that would keep you kind of thinking there is a future in this. But if you hear this debate, and I've heard some people reference maybe in two years' time, let's not rush it. Well, that two years' time is 40 years' time to him. That sounds tactical, though, as well, I, in, in some ways, yeah. Vincent. Yeah. Do you, do you, the other thing I'd say on that is that everyone is in favour of, or most people would say they're in favour of change in the abstract. It's like being in favour of freedom of speech in the abstract. You know, the, the rubber hits the road when you've actually got to confront the change. Um, and like that is that I would always be wary of people who say, oh, we must this, you know, we would like to we'd like to do something, but this isn't it. Like change has to come incrementally, really. Um, and a suspicion of change, but an idea that, oh, no, I'm actually in favor of change is the kind of the, the sort of conservative uh, rallying cry in some ways. So I, I, would, I think I wouldn't disagree with that, Dion, but I, I would I would say that, you know, a lot of people could see glaring flaws in this and yet a majority voted for it. So it's 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 more than an abstract thing for a small majority at the moment. And it doesn't mm. take a huge leap to get 50.6 to 60, in my view, if the will is there to try and address the problems that people were speaking about over the last day and, and to actually deal with them in a really proactive, aggressive way now. Because I think there, there are players considering whether they have a future in county football at the moment. Yeah, like uh, Kieran McAvanagh, you said there, Vincent, uh, we are not backward looking. We're one of the most progressive organisations in this country, if not the world. That has come out of the pandemic and see how the Talton Cup fairs let us take a bit more time and come back to this. So I don't really know what outside forces he was talking about. But um, mm -hmm. yeah, if it, like I do think the players, have they been snubbed? I kind of feel that they have. They, it, it's easy for them to interpret it that way. Um, I think it was significant that Larry McCarthy and Tom Ryan both came out this week in favour of Plan B. Um, but there's there are a lot of different issues to this. And, and, I, and I can see, for example, that a lot of the debate over the last couple of weeks was about revenue streams. You know, what would the revenue streams be? What no one really addressed, I felt, was that what would be the preparation costs? Because this is the, the elephant in the room for inter-county GA at the moment, certainly with the bigger teams, the cost of preparing teams. And I mean, if if suddenly you've got seven games, 
you probably need a deeper panel for seven games in, in relatively quick succession. I think it's seven games in, in 10 weeks or something along those lines. So it's quite possible that the, uh, the, the preparation costs, which are already a, a, a red light blinking in, the, in every GA county, um, that the costs attached to that could go up. So I'm, I'm not by any means saying this is the perfect thing what I am saying is something has to change. And we we now have a situation where it just feels like we're back in quicksand. And I just hope that the energy is there to find a solution. We're not going to get a perfect solution. And somebody, whatever is passed, whatever eventually gets that 60%, there are going to be people unhappy. But it's not as if they're going to be shouted down. Like this... Everything can be looked at and looked at and looked at. But right now, the most important thing for me is that players think inter-county is a viable prospect for them. And I think in an awful lot of counties, they don't feel that. I would agree with that. Um, I wonder what Galway hurlers are feeling, Vincent, after the news emerged this week about Henry Shefflin uh, being appointed as their new senior manager. Kilkenny legend. I think he's the best hurler I've ever seen, personal view. Uh, we know the great work he did with Bally Hale. It's not easy to win two All-Ireland club titles in a row, whatever talent you might have. And uh, I think when he walks into that dressing room, there will be an immediate respect. And you know him a little bit, Vincent. Yeah, well, I would know Henry reasonably well. Um, I, I ghost wrote his autobiography, so I would have spent a lot of time in his company. Um, a really fine individual getting away from the fact yes I would I'd agree with you he's probably the greatest hurler I ever watched as well and I'm a good bit older than you John I've probably seen <laughs> a lot more um, but I think for Galway players this would be a really really exciting appointment and um, just you know it seemed to me that it came from out of the blue but I was reading Dennis Walsh's piece um, in the Sunday Times Dennis is suggesting that and they came up with a short list of, of 30 from the, from the get-go and that he was at the top of that list um, and that's not whatever soundings were made to him at that stage um, the, the response they got was that the timing just wasn't right and that was always the vibe I would have felt with Henry that you know he would have been uncomfortable certainly with the prospect of managing against his own his own being Ballyhale in club championship and obviously Kilkenny um, in Leinster and All-Ireland. But in accepting this job, and I, I don't know whether they went and asked him again or whether he came back to them and said, I've maybe had a little of thought about this. But it's, um, it's an appointment, John, that electrifies the championship in my view because Galway were seen certainly in, in this year's National League. And remember, they shared the National League Championship with Kilkenny because we didn't have a National League final. So Galway came out of that National League absolutely categorically seen by most people as the biggest danger to Limerick because they have the physical players and they have the amount of talent in the squad and they have a lot of minor All-Irelands. I think it's five since 2010 or something like that. So there's a lot of talent in Galway. And obviously there is the inevitable question, can he turn Joe Canning's arm and get Joe to come back out of retirement? And I don't know, maybe conversations have, have been had there. I, I wouldn't be privy to, 
to them. But um, What's your gut telling you? My gut tells me Joe might stick to his guns. I think he's had some terrible injuries, John. Um, I, I think over the years, his achievements, and we look at this incredible skill in front of us, but the amount of work just to get onto the pitch for Joe Canning in, in the last few years. And it's 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 work done in very unseen places, gym work, physio work. He's had some horrible injuries. Um, and I, you know, certainly in his interviews, since he made that announcement, he's been categorical, no, he won't go back. Now, I don't think on any level, Joe Canning imagined he was walking out of a dress room that Henry Shefflin was walking in another door. I'm sure it's certainly crossed his mind, maybe. I'm sure for Henry particularly, he would love to have um, an enthusiastic canning in that dressing room. Maybe he could sell it to him on the basis of an impact sub. I'm not sure that's a, a role that Joe would ever warm to. But it certainly, you know, there, there, there was a suggestion, for example, that if Davy Fitz got the job, that they, they had connections going back to winning an LIT together, uh, Fitzgibbon together with LIT. So that was a possibility. I don't know. It, it seems to me that, that Joe sticks very much to his guns. I, I think maybe if any man can change, change his mind, it's Henry. But either way, with Joe or without Joe, what happens in Galway over the next year is going to be utterly compelling. Absolutely. And I think even by reading Dennis Walsh's piece about the process was Terry Eddie O'Sullivan was involved in part of the recruitment, which was interesting. And yeah, they, they obviously went about a very kind of business-like approach yeah. to the appointment. And um, I see in Dennis's piece, um, the interview, they interviewed Henry then finally last Monday, I think. And, and it's clear that the interview board seemed to have been very happy straight away with what they saw in Henry and who wouldn't be. I mean, I, I, I don't imagine anyone has ever interviewed Henry Shefflin and come away underwhelmed. Um, and the, the appointment seemed to happen very, very quickly because, you know, it did seem certainly on Tuesday evening that uh, the the general narrative out there was that Davy Fitz was the front runner. I think Jeffrey Linsky and Brian Hanley were in, in, in contention too. Nobody was mentioning the name Henry Shefflin and then suddenly on, on Wednesday evening, the story broke. And uh, yeah. I, I would say Galway GA are very happy with how confidentially they, they did their business because, you know, it's it's normal in these things that some leakage gets out, but uh, none got out of this process. Dermacro. Is that something... Sorry, sorry, John. Uh, just Finney on that, is that something that would uh, be in keeping with Henry's style as well like again Paul Flynn on the currency yesterday was saying that one of the things he was impressed by in this and he felt would be part of Henry Shefflin's uh, style would be this need for trust and that it doesn't get out like you know the fact that it just took everyone by surprise is almost characteristic of of Shefflin in its own way too because he's honest he is unassuming I've only met him a couple of times and you do come away, as you said in that, like when you said about the interview, nobody, those times I met him, you come away from it, not just impressed by, you know, what he's achieved and how he talks about it, but that sense of curiosity he has, that sense of 
asking questions as much as answering them. Um, and, you know, that seems to be what, you know, we've all, we've, we've all talked to great players who you talk to them and you think these guys couldn't make it as a manager because it is their, it is the, uh, a self-obsession that has driven them to success. Whereas with, with Shefflin, he seems to have that curiosity that will allow him to make that leap. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a very good point, Dan. Um, I think it would have absolutely, you know, Henry would have hated it leaking out and it would have made him question the environment he was going to step into had it leaked out. Um, certainly in, 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 in all my dealings with him, he's very, very conscientious about his own image um, and how he's perceived and, and you know, the integrity that he carries. And, and I think integrity is a word that follows him everywhere. Um, so I, I think that's a great point. I, I think the fact that it was kept so, so secretively um, would have his stamp all over it. That I, I would imagine that when he agreed to the idea of going to be interviewed, I think he was interviewed in Port Leash, um, he would have been absolutely adamant that it had to happen in a very almost covert way that, you know, it certainly wouldn't be in the local bar, the bar of the local hotel or something like that. That's just not his style. And I think he's very, he's very mindful of not being seen to step on other people's toes if other people thought they had the job. And, uh, you know, certainly next thing his name was being attached to it or certainly if, if, if other people were still in the job. That wouldn't, you know, that wouldn't be up his street at all. So, yeah, I think the secretive aspect to it, which a lot of people would say wouldn't be typical Galway in many ways, I think it's it's certainly right up Henry Shefflin Street. It's amazing for years Henry Shefflin would have thought about only one thing, which was Kilkenny hurling. And now, Vincent, that he wakes up in the morning, the first thing you'll probably think about is Galway and the second thing you'll probably think about is Limerick. Yeah, and it's there's no doubt about it. It's There, there are going to be uncomfortable moments for Henry. And I, and I think the very fact of, of managing against his own, which he'll have to do in the round robin series, which he may then have to do again in the provincial final, if they both get to the provincial final, and he may conceivably have to do it again. And so it's not inconceivable that he could have three championship games next year against Brian Cody. And um, I think he'll be, that will definitely make him uncomfortable but not on any way on a level that will pare away or diminish his competitive instinct. He will, he will want to win those games and he will want to, you know, he, he makes no bones about the fact or, or the influence that Brian Cody has had on his career. But what we saw very quickly when he stepped into management with Bally Hale was he would do it his, his way. And I, I remember sending him a message when they won the, the second All-Ireland I don't think people appreciated the scale of that achievement. Think of it logically. The, the, the amount of time it takes to win an All-Ireland club with your club championship and to win a county final is a big thing. And for many clubs, the idea of being bounced straight into a provincial club championship straight away is a real pain nearly because they want to celebrate their club title. Ballyhill went into the club Munster or the Leinster Club Championship and went all the way and won the All Ireland. 
Now, to get that group of players and get them to go again and do the exact same thing again, which Matty Kenny did the same at Kula, um, is a phenomenal achievement. It's, a, it's an achievement not just in coaching, but in serious man management, in getting those players to buy in that we can do it again. And, and I thought that was an extraordinary achievement. His first job in management, and he wins back-to-back Club All-Irelands. Um, you, you can see why Galway have gone for him. You know, you can see the, the way he carries himself, the aura he has. You know he's going to walk into that Galway dressing room and you will hear a pin drop. It'll be that quiet. And he will always have that aura. And um, it's hard to see if, if Galway haven't missed the boat in being the team to really, really seriously challenge this Limerick team of the ages. Um, it's hard to see him not getting the very best out of them. Um, it's going to be it's going to be phenomenal. It's it, it's going to be phenomenal just in terms of his relationship with Cody, his relationship with Kilkenny. But if he can get Lim- if he can get Galway flying, they may be the team to bring down Limerick. Because let's be honest, Limerick right now believe they should be four in a row champions. They messed up against Kilkenny. You know, fell way behind in the opening. 20 minutes of the 2019 semi-final and Kilken- uh, Limerick just couldn't get back in time. Probably should have got a 65, didn't get it. Game over, lost by a point. And Kilkenny went in to the All-Ireland final and were hammered by tip. So Limerick absolutely, categorically believe they should be going for five in a row next year. That's how good this team is. Henry will see his job as not just winning Leinster, but going head-to-head with that Limerick team and, and bringing him down off their pedestal. And as well, Body Hale, I was thinking that they also overcame the fact that they lost two panellists and road tragedies, tragically. Um, so there's, there's obviously, they came through all of that as well as winning the two clubs, um, Vincent. Um, Man United against Liverpool, half four. I suppose the best article I wrote, I read today, was uh, written um, as a serialisation of a book. So actually it wasn't an article, but it was um, published in the Sunday Times, Dion, about Patrice Evra from his book I Love This Game going into I would say grim detail of the racial abuse he received at the hands of Luis Suarez in a match in 2011 between Liverpool and Man United Um, I won't repeat some of the stuff on air but the facts are Suarez was given an eight match ban and a £40,000 fine for racially abusing ever and people didn't really come out of it that well but it's the best thing I I read today and it's uh, I suppose it's it's a reminder that the uh, some of the nasty stuff that you see uh, off the pitch when it comes to Man United and Liverpool can sometimes get onto the pitch. Yeah, it is um, it is a very grim read and it's a reminder of a, a very grim time and a particularly uh, horrendous um, example of, of or horrendous the way Liverpool handled it at, at the time, you know, culminating in the, in the players wearing those uh, Suarez t-shirts before the game against Wigan um, which uh, you know I think they've they've apologised for I think the club actually apologised to Evera for subsequently um, but it is it is extraordinary reading back in it and you know the d- details uh, as you say or are are all there but um, there there is a line in it where he says uh he went to, Deborah went to 
the referee Andre Mariner uh, at the time when when Suarez started racially abusing him, and Mar- Mariner said um, he said I just get this exactly right. He said we'll uh, he said we'll, we'll 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 deal with that later. Um, I know it is uh, it is something that I don't think you would uh, you you would see as a as a way of being being handled um, uh, today. I just want to check that that's I just want to get that right on that. But you yeah, know that's uh, um, it's um, it's it's extraordinary that 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 is how. And I remember I was at that game covering that game, and um, it was. Uh, you know, it was one of those games that you know suddenly everything happened uh, afterwards. You know, this was this the story developed, and uh, um, it wasn't something that you expected to take place the way it took place. But then it just revealed uh, a, a tribalism um, that uh, that was was kind of extraordinary and so damaging and you had this situation where Liverpool fans were booing Patrice Evra and they were booing because they felt of what, of what a story which they couldn't really have any knowledge of the facts but they were booing him because he he had accused a Liverpool player and hugely important Liverpool player uh, as a of, of of racism but they couldn't see that this was that you know what what this what this did what this actually transpired what this translated into and uh, it was um, a deeply depressing time. What happened now, Vincent? Um, it's a good question, John. I'm not. Sh- I'm not sure. Um, I think, you know, these games certainly Manchester United, Liverpool are, can become very inflamed. Um, high intensity games. People are capable of doing irrational things and. You know, I wouldn't be in a in a position where I could comfortably say it couldn't happen again. I think when you think of the intensity of it, of, of what whatever encountered after this, when 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 Suarez got his suspension, I mean, he got a letter from a man in prison. He said, "Who's the first thing he was going to do when he got out was kill me," and uh, he had security around his house, twenty four hour security around his house for for two months after. Um, and I look, I, as a very passionate Liverpool supporter, I think Liverpool were so bad in how they handled that. And, and then, you know, Dion referred to the, the shirts before the Wigan game and that. But also the idea that when it came to shaking hands and Ever was willing to shake hands and Suarez just skipped him. And I, and I think, again, you know, you can have great players, and and while he was a Liverpool player, we all loved what Luis Suarez did in terms of his goal scoring. But you could also see an unpleasant side to him, and and that unpleasant side would bubble over every now and then. And it's funny, I I, I hear anecdotally that when he played for Barcelona in the four nil game, that famous four nil game at Anfield, there subsequently, and I I heard that he really was upset and surprised that Liverpool fans booed him that night. And, you know, it just shows you how subjective supporters can be. They will idolise you no matter what your conduct is if you're putting the ball in the net for your team. But the moment you come back 
they're looking at you and saying he's a nasty piece of business, you know. So we can be very, very, <laughs> uh, very, very skewed in how we look at our, the players, and and uh, we can change our minds about people instantly as soon as they wear a different jersey. Well, yeah, the- I think that 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 noise. Uh, it is again. It's a great, great example of how you have to try and that that noise is meaningless. That that tribal noise does nothing to advance uh, or, or or illuminate any any debate. And like the Suarez situation at the time was kind of clear in that. I, I don't think anybody Liverpool fans, the club, would they have taken the same position with a player who was less important to them than Luis Suarez? Um. And because he was so important in a team that desperately needed him, Liverpool supporters who pride themselves. Uh, and, you know, there were, I remember talking to the Tony Evans, the journalist who's also a Liverpool fan, and Tony Evans never went down the road. Like, Tony Evans was always very strong that this was wrong and had to be condemned. Um, but so many Liverpool fans who would pride themselves, and it's a club that would pride itself, uh, and the Eamon Sweeney, Eamon Sweeney touches upon this in a different piece today in terms of Jurgen Klopp, who would pride itself on its left-wing values and credentials. And yet so many people went down sort of rabbit holes talking about, you know, diet, Rio Plantez's dialects and uh, all this kind of stuff. Myopia. It's just complete myopia because of, well, you're just, so entrenched just, in your own well, position. Your yeah, own house. because you want to, you want to believe. You need to believe. We don't in... do anything wrong in our house. Well, it's not even that. It's just that there are more. Ultimately, is there are more important. The honest position would be there are more important things to me than than this because Luis Suarez is more important than any of this. That is the position that people put themselves in because they feel that this is something that is so important to them. And you can see, you can see parallels. With, with the way some Newcastle fans have responded to the Saudi Arabia takeover um, uh, and this idea that they are they are so put upon they are they're they're entitled to this because of their long suffering as Newcastle fans now it is long suffering in sporting terms and it is uh, but it is it is it is nothing really in terms of what you know Saudi Arabia are accused of. Um, and this was a this was it was an interesting time because it you know it came then the John Terry Anton Ferdinand incident happened after this, um, but it did it did it was so depressing in terms of what it uh, sort of illuminated about tribalism in football and where it was going and because of social media and because of Twitter there was going to be even more entrenched views um, and. And Vincent is right. I I don't know. I think I think the way Andre Mariner dealt with it wouldn't happen today. I don't think if if, if a player goes and says uh, that somebody else has racially abused them, that the referee would say we'll deal with this later. Um, I don't think that would happen today. But every other bit of it, can you sit confidently say in a world that's become more tribal ten years later that there wouldn't be the same? Um, response because look at look at what's happening with Newcastle look at how they are saying that that's not for you know some Newcastle fans are saying that's not for us that's not yeah well we didn't have we didn't have council culture then I suppose um 
maybe there's a bit more accountability now. I would like to hope that there is. Um, I think with Suarez, though, there was always a feral nature to Suarez when he went on a football pitch. Uh, like, obviously, the biting being the example of that, which is just, like, the bizarre behaviour. Um, 4.30 kickoff. We have it live on News Talk on the radio. Um, it's just a fascinating... <laughs> Uh, game really for a couple of reasons I, I really like Jonathan Liu's piece in The Observer I'm going to quote uh, some of that now uh, in May the club opened the first of five new entertainment centres it's planning to build in mainland China located near Tiananmen Square in Beijing the Theatre of Dreams offers visitors an interactive journey through the club's incredible history encompassing 142 years of triumph heroics and the never ending pursuit of excellence there are light shows photo opportunities games where you can try a swerve of football like David Beckham or recreate Wayne Rooney's famous bicycle kick against Manchester City a big screen plays the 1999 Champions League final on an endless loop you can enjoy Manchester style fish and chips for £13 or Manchester United speciality meat platter for £53 I'm reading this and kind of thinking are the Glazers just happy for this to be this roller coaster chaotic entertainment brand uh, just as much as winning the Premier League title back again and is Solskjaer the perfect front man for that because there is such an emotional connection with the supporters and Solskjaer with Mark Lawrence on yesterday saying that the standard that Liverpool were always judged to was the reaction of their supporters and we saw with Newcastle and Steve Bruce that I think the chaos is almost um maybe being embraced more than people think because the, the the argument I suppose every week in the 24-7 news cycle Vincent is that well Solskjaer he's going to be sacked or he's going to go but maybe it's a, a little bit of a different way that people are looking at it in the boardroom you know Possibly but you know when you know you look at social media when they were 2-0 down to Atlanta during the week and the amount of social media suggesting Ollie's in trouble here, Ollie's in trouble here, and and you know, particularly with the proximity of of the game against Liverpool, um, I just think that it just seems a bit of a basket case of a club on many levels with the the, the way the Glazers, the, the financial model that the Glazers you know, adopted, um, you know, the the way that they sign a 36-year-old Ronaldo for half a million a week. Now, this guy is magnificent, let me say. I'm, I'm not by any means downplaying how good a player he is, but he's, he's 36. You know, the, the view seems to be that they got him, got him because Guardiola wanted him and, uh, oh, let's not let him go there. So as a, almost as a an overnight thought, oh, let's get Cristiano back to Old Trafford. I, I just look at the way they're set up and let's be real about it. They've had plenty of money to make big, big signings. And, but there's no sense of what way Ole wants the team to play, in my view. And I was particularly struck towards the tail end of last season when Liverpool went to Old Trafford with Nat Phillips and Reese Williams as their centre-backs and Liverpool desperately needing to get wins to try and scramble into the top four. And probably not looking like they were going to make it at the time. And United rest, rested players in their previous match, even though mathematically, I think they might still have had a chance of winning the title. So all the big dogs were out that night. Pogba, Bruno Fernandes, and Liverpool did a number on them with that centre-back pairing. And you look at the amount of games you see these world-class talents just not turning up in, and you watch Liverpool today, and all the talk right now is that Salah is probably the best player in the world, and he may well be. And it is a tricky one for Liverpool. You know, do they explode their wage structure and give him the deal that he seems to be asking for? 
you watch the way Salah plays, the way Bobby Firmino plays, the way Sadio Mane plays, these three superstar frontmen they have, watch the tracking back they do, watch the chasing they do, watch how Salah protects Trent Alexander-Arnold today. And that's the humility, that's the culture in the Klopp dressing room that you won't see at United and you can't see it United because of the model that they are. And Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is rightly loved by Manchester United fans. But I think the biggest weakness Ole has is he has no real ego, no real discernible ego that's identifiable in comparison to the players under his control. The idea that he can go in and rebuke Bruno Fernandes or Pogba or now Ronaldo about what they're doing or what they're not doing is just not credible to me. And that's why I think they're not really a credible dressing room, despite having all of these superstars there. And I also read, Dion, that uh, Jonathan Orcroft's piece about Jadon Sancho, who, like Varane and Ronaldo, was signed in the close season. Uh, he led the Bundesliga for dribbles attempted in 2018, 19, 1920 and 2021, but is joined 86th first in this season's Premier League. It's almost trying to fit too many attacking players into a system and... Um, uh, that's what I was trying to talk about, the chaos. And I wonder, are almost the owners happy to be in our Arsene Wenger-style Champions League position every year? Um, but as Vincent points out there, there doesn't seem to be any comparison between Liverpool and Man United. doesn't mean that Liverpool are going to win 3-0 today, but it's more likely than the other option. Yeah, although these these games have become uh, more interesting usually for the build-up than the actual matches. They have a tendency going way back now to be... Uh, a real anti-climax, um, but I, I I think everything Vincent says is is right. I and I, I Jonathan Lou's piece is there's definitely a truth in that, and you know you're reminded of Richard Arnold boasting about the uh, the rating the Manchester United app has, you know the 4.9 rating that the Manchester United app has. You know that was a couple of years ago, and talking about this in a call with investors and talking about how the club had more Facebook followers than I think it was the NFL, the NBA and some uh, maybe the Major League Baseball combined, something like that. So those metrics are what the people running the club are interested in. And Solskjaer certainly feeds into that sense, as does the signing of Ronaldo, of the club as a theme park. Um, and, you know, the Atalanta coming back from 2-0 also feeds into that. But it's Atalanta. It's not Turin in 1999. It's not Barcelona. It's not the new, Camp Nou in 1999 against Bayern Munich. It's Atalanta at home. Um, and so I think ultimately there is a problem there for Solskjaer. Ronaldo signing, I, I don't think it, it, made, it made sense. I think Sancho is one of the reasons why it didn't make, make sense. You know, he scores a winning goal on, on Wednesday night, and it's like, this is what, what Manchester United signed him for. But, you know, you could argue that for so, you know, he was such a passenger for so long in that game that you don't know what would have happened with actually a fully functioning team, which he, he finds it very hard to be a part of at the age of 36. So, I, I don't see that. Would would Klopp have signed him? Um, like there is no. I think it's almost unfair to Solskjaer to compare him to to Klopp because as managers, they're not the same 
species. You know, they're not really in the same league, uh, Klopp and Solskjaer. Um, and there is no way, like Klopp, like you, you read an awful lot of articles about what Liverpool did and, you know, the, the structure of the club and Mike Edwards and all these kind of things. But I always believed that none of it would have been possible without what Klopp did. No. And you see it in everything he does, the intelligence he brings to everything, whether it's talking about Newcastle, whether it's talking about the Super League, whether it's talking about Brexit, um, yeah. he has an intelligence and a perceptive quality and a curiosity, again, you come back to that thing, that so few managers have. And he transformed that club. The other structures were great. And I, I but it would, none of it would have been possible without him and Solskjaer then is a middle of the road mediocre manager whose reputation as a player is has some value to Manchester United because he was he was part of those those great nights but I don't know how long that can sustain itself I think ultimately when you have performances like the Leicester game you reach a point with all those players in the dressing room where they start going why do we not of a manager who knows how to send us out to win these matches. Yeah, Eamon Sweeney's written about that at the back of the Sunday Independent today. And I think with Klopp, you'll know when Klopp's gone from Liverpool, the impact, not just as a football manager, but as a figure on Merseyside will be, um, because I think he's just absolutely totemic. Uh, we're not too uh, far from finishing up, lads. Just, uh, Vincent, I suppose a kind of a... A bit of a worrying story, this, uh, in the back of the Sunday Times on uh, allegations um, that... Um, the bullying allegations against Robbie Dunn, a jockey uh, based in the UK against uh, Bryony Frost. So I'm just going to quote here. Through the past 10 days, having read and reread the British Horse Racing Authority's 120 plus page report into Bryony Frost's complaint against fellow jockey Robbie Dunn, it's clear that not enough has changed. Frost alleges she was subjected to bullying and harassment by Dunn over a number of years, claims that Dunn steadfastly denies and which will be determined by a forthcoming disciplinary panel. The BHA report makes for grim reading as it shows that attitudes to female jockeys inside the weighing room are nowhere near where they need to be in the early 21st century. Frost has stood up for women's rights in the weighing room. Others need to do the same. Now, this is the UK. I don't think we get these allegations in Ireland personally. We Rachel Blackmore, the top jockey at Cheltenham, and won the Grand National. But uh, not the best thing to be reading today. No, it certainly isn't. Um, I, I read David's piece last week and this week, um, you know, that it kind of develops it further where there, there are other... There are other... Uh, female writers who, you know, suggested that Dunn had be, behaved badly towards them, but when they were questioned on it, a lot of them kind of backed away again. And I think one of the trickiest things here in the BHA kind of, you know, endorsing this opinion is that it's like breaking a cord of a murta, John. That, yeah. You know, that in, within the way room, these things, what happens in there, it stays in there type of mentality. It seems to me that Brianna Frost has been very brave here, um, that she's she's come out and she said enough is enough. And I, and I think, you know, when you think of how intimidating physically jump racing is, um, I would have imagined male or female, that way room has to be a very nerve wracking place to be sometimes without this type of thing going on, without the kind of intimidation. And the fasting as well, yeah. And the fasting and, and now, you know, you, you do feel there will always be an element of a hierarchy in those places and people kind of 
have their own slot and you don't you don't cr cross them but i don't know reading this it makes very uncomfortable reading i haven't agree with you john i i can't imagine this happening in an irish way room i don't think it would happen i think you know when you talk to the male jockeys about what rachel has done they are genuinely um in awe of her talent and her sex is so irrelevant in in any of the debate and and you could see even rachel herself when she was having that phenomenal cheltenham and the the tv interviewer inevitably wanted to talk about what it was showing young girls everywhere and and, and rachel was getting kind of a bit tired of this because she thinks gender shouldn't be coming into it but you know what david has has, has exposed here is something very troubling and a culture within the way room that is very uncomfortable when asked to address it. And um, for that alone, I think Brainy Frost maybe deserves a lot of credit for shining a light on this. Um, but it's, um, it's not a comfortable read, you're right. No, and she's one of the stars of British racing, won the King George and... Um, she's but, such a brilliant yeah. personality. I mean, yeah. I love her interviews. I, I often say I, I wish every jockey I went to interview spoke like Brainy Frost because when she talks about her relationship with Froden and that, yeah, it's just wonderful. It's 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 you know it's beyond sport. It's 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 so full of emotion and joy um, that it's it's a joyous thing. And and even for someone with an uneducated eye like mine, when I go to racing, and I just love to see that human side. What do you want to finish up with, Dion? The cricketers didn't have the best of weeks. I suppose those wins over Pakistan and England are now fading in the memory. Yeah, there's a couple of good pieces um, by Chair Siggins and Peter O'Reilly today, and they're making the point, Jarrah's piece making the point about failures on the field. Now, Ireland weren't hugely like. Uh, fancy to get out of out of this preliminary, which you know, and get into the T20 World Cup because the, it's the T20 isn't their strongest uh, form of the game. But still, the fact that they had it to beat Namibia on Friday and batted poorly and and didn't and and lost to Namibia um, probably puts it into show shows the failure in in a, in, a, in a or shows the performance in a very bad light but there is also um as jerry says there are big questions to address for cricket ireland there's no doubt the players have been let down by the symbolic development of the facilities at the national sports campus the most important part of the practice area the grass wickets should have been ready two years ago but a recent photograph showed it was still scrubland and play will not be possible for at least two years more and uh, it is astonishing that coach graham ford has not thrown his hat at it by now and several of the staff who have left in recent years have pointed at the farce of a virtual training centre. And I think uh, the Sunday Times piece makes a point that their batting coach is based in the UK and they only get coaching with them when they're on tour. Um, so again, we have a, a, a sports administration story, John. Um, and, you know, Frigate Ireland is a, is a very well-run organization in many ways and an organization that many of us would look to in terms of you know when we unfortunately have to look to discuss sports administration we would look to it as one of one of the the better ones but it's this is this is a failure that will 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 will, will cost them and uh it is a theme you know there's there's paul rowan has a story today 
very interesting story about Fintan Drury, the football football agent, among other things, his his book and what he says about about the FAI and uh, and how it was run and the culture in there. And I interviewed Fintan again this weekend too. And one of the things that that is striking in his book, and when you talk to him across the FAI, the other companies he was involved in, Anglo Irish Bank, Paddy Power, is um, how the the reality is kind of hiding in, in plain sight. Different realities yeah. in, in all companies, but there's something there that we we, we look away from. And uh, and that's, that's something that I think as a country we need to get better at. And you look at what happens when you do get it right and you look at the coverage of the women's football team and they have a huge game on Tuesday and you look at how they how the women's team were treated under under the FAI in the past, and that failure, even to have a vision to see what actually how big women's football can become, and it is it is you see it now and you see it everywhere around the world. You see it everywhere what it is becoming, and the interest that it that is developing in it, and how big it's going to become. And then you look back and you think, how could I know it wasn't. We everyone was aware of this, and it was a scandal at the time. What was happening with the Irish women's team? But you see now with with, with what's happening that there is yeah. there is there is some hope, and there is a chance of something better developing. Vincent, do you want to point uh, the listeners, uh, the viewers, to anything that we haven't touched upon? Not really, John. No, that's the, that's a wrap. Oh, yeah, there, there is that piece actually. If I could just bring it up quickly, uh, my my colleague David Kelly has done a piece. It, on the Irish women's team, who obviously, and I think it's, it's been very brave of Vera Powell in many ways, the way she has focused on putting them in against stronger teams, stronger nations, and saying that's the only way we'll learn. So there, there's been this series of, you know, setbacks and poor defeats, but then, you know, to play so well the other night against Sweden, um, a, a team they had no right to even consider trying to beat and um yeah it's it's actually it's it's an interview with Onyo Gorman but it it strikes me Vera Pau has has always encouraged the girls to train with boys and Onyo Gorman trains with the you know apart from her normal training um she trains with Bray under 17s as well and you know if you think of what made Katie Taylor the boxer she was, it was always, she had no option at the time, but to train with boys. And to see, and you can bring them up on, on, on YouTube, some of her sparring sessions with Paddy Barnes and that, absolutely electric. But, you know, it's, I think it's, it's, it's a really smart thing to do um, from the physical development of the players and also what Pau has done in getting them to play higher standard teams because by all accounts, I didn't see the game against Sweden, but by all accounts, they looked really well organised. They and were, it yeah, yeah. It was the known goal that beat them. And hopefully Tuesday goes goes better for them. But, but I think they're, they're certainly heading in the right direction. OK. Uh, Vincent Hogan of the Irish Independent and Dion Fanning of The Currency. Thanks so much for your insight on the Sunday Pay Review. Enjoy the rest of your day, lads. Thanks, Thanks John. John.
Okay, off the ball on your radio from one until seven on News Talk, and on the OTB Sports app, we've got two live and exclusive Premier League commentary games to bring you. First up, West Ham versus Tottenham Hotspur. Jessica Farry and Keith Tracy describing that one. Then it's the big one: Manchester United against Liverpool. Joe Malloy and Brian Kerr providing the call. If you missed any of the Sunday paper review, you can check out the podcast on the OTB Sports app or wherever you get your pods. We're back on your radio from one. Chat then. Simeone never shakes anyone's hands. <laughs> Back then, the tunnel, let's not bother no, with that crap. I've got a lot of respect for that. I, I knew you would. No, I no, I've got a lot of respect for that. Subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB Sports app.